0: Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here.
1: Beloved, our reading this morning comes to us again from the Gospel According to Luke. This morning's reading from the gospel according to Luke is a section that belongs to a larger block of writing found in verses one through 24 of chapter 14. Now, within these verses, Luke gathers four different stories or units together, utilizing the context of a meal. Now, the four stories do not depend on each other for meaning, but it is absolutely essential that they all occur at a table. For Judaism, for Jesus, for the early church, table fellowship was laden with fundamental religious, social, and economic meanings. Nothing can be more serious for Luke than a dining table. Both the Eucharist, Holy Communion, and the revelations of the risen Christ occur where? at a table. While eating together, Christ gave his disciples the promise of the Holy Spirit in their commission. And it was by table fellowship, by eating together, that Jews and Gentiles were able to become the ecclesia, the church, the assembly of God's people. Here in the verses from Luke this morning, Jesus challenges all of us with a simple question. Who are we inviting to the table? A reading from Luke chapter 14, verses seven through 14. When he noticed how the guests chose their places of honor, he told them a parable. When you were invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor. In case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, Would you give a luncheon or a dinner? Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your sisters or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." May God add a blessing to the reading of this word.
0: Excuse me. And soul and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God. God, with all your heart and soul and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Over
2: well, the last few weeks, we have been talking a lot about the art and practice of neighboring. What does it look like to love our neighbors, not just in principle, but in practice? What would our neighborhoods look like if we actually took seriously the teaching of Jesus when he directly tied our own salvation to how we love our neighbors? Do you remember that particular teaching? Reverend Harvey preached on that just a few weeks ago. This moment when a man comes to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does your Bible say? And the man says, love the Lord with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, well, just go do this and you will live. Can you imagine what our neighborhoods would look like if we loved our neighbors as if our very eternal life depended on it. I mean, think about that. Wouldn't we hustle a little bit more in loving our neighbors? Some people have that proverbial image in their minds of standing at the gates of heaven and meeting St. Peter. Uh, you've seen that New Yorker-style cartoon before a million times, and St. Peter standing behind that big corporate-y looking desk with a, a clipboard and a pen. And he's asking some people some very highly consequential questions. I'm not suggesting that it works this way. But if it does turn out to work this way, what questions do you think St. Peter would be asking? A lot of people, a lot of Christians expect Peter to ask questions like, uh, all right, do you believe in the virgin birth? Check. Do you believe in the atonement? Check. Check. Do you believe dinosaurs were real? (laughs) Do you believe we might have let Gandhi in here even though he's not a Christian? Shockingly, Jesus says none of these questions are going to be on the final exam. If St. Peter really is asking questions of the pearly gates, we better be prepared to answer this one question. Did you love your neighbors? And of course, we're going to say, well, yes, absolutely. But before we assume that we have passed the test, Peter will ask one more question that will prove whether we really did love our neighbors. He's going to ask us, what are their names? (laughs) And if you're like me, you're going to be in a lot of trouble because isn't it hard To love our neighbors? Do you love yours? Do you know their names? Do you know their needs? Do you know their hurts, their hopes? Most of us do not. We are living in an age of unprecedented social isolation. Epidemiologists, psychologists, psychiatrists, public health officials, social scientists, they all agree on this that the number one health crisis in America today, it's not cancer, it's not obesity, it's not heart disease, it's loneliness. And what is loneliness? It's hard to measure because it is a subjective perception that we are all alone. That there is nobody out there upon whom we can depend. One in five Americans today report that loneliness is a major source of unhappiness in their lives. One in five, 20% of us. One in three, a third of us, over the age of 45, report that chronic loneliness is a fundamental challenge for them. Two out of every three American teenagers and young adult report feeling lonely either much of the time or all of the time. Loneliness is killing us. And studies show that meaningful social relationships are second only to genetics in predicting our health and longevity as human beings. Persistent loneliness reduces our average lifespans by as much as three years. On Christmas Day, 2014, I read the news story about a woman, a 63-year-old woman living in southern Illinois who was found dead in her garage. Her body was discovered by her stepdaughter who had to fly all the way from Japan when her stepmother wasn't picking up the phone when she called. And when she arrived, the stepdaughter arrived at that home she found an overgrown lawn, dozens of packages on the front porch, and an overstuffed mailbox. And the coroner reported that Simmons, Sunantha Simmons, had been dead for more than a year. One neighbor interviewed said that he would mow her lawn periodically just to keep the neighborhood looking tidy. Another neighbor reported that she had been close with Mrs. Simmons until Simmons became depressed over the death of her husband. The antidote to loneliness is knowing and being known by our neighbors, having and living with the assurance that there are people who surround us, who are with us, who are for us, who are looking out for us. Social psychologist they tell us that we have this instinctive need for connection and belonging. It's one of the most universal and human, basic human needs uh, to be accepted by others as a member of a group, to belong to something greater than ourselves, to give and receive affection. We are just hardwired for it. It's called belongingness. And it's not only an instinctive behavior, it is a culturally conditioned one. Our earliest ancestors on the savannas understood what we today know to be true, that to survive and to thrive as human beings, we need a tribe. Do you remember that need for a tribe, the need for belonging when you were a kid? That moment on the playground when the kids are dividing up to to come into teams and picking kids for each team, and, and you don't really care what team you're on, just that you're not Picked last. Do you remember the cool kids table? Do you remember how in high school your whole identity seemed to be defined by what group you belong to? The jocks, the bandies, the geeks, the goths, the skaters, the hipsters. We all have this inherent incessant need to find our place in the social structures of our world. Whether we're trying out for the high school lacrosse team or pledging for the college sorority or just sitting down at a neighborhood barbecue, we all know that feeling of searching and struggling to find our people and our tribe. So a lot of us at an early age, we learn all these strategies for doing it subtly and strategically. We, we show up to spaces and we look around the room and we figure out who's in our way and who can help us the most, uh, we size people up. C.S. Lewis called this the, the phenomenon of the inner ring. And Lewis said that we all have this lifelong desire from infancy to old age to be inside the local ring. Today we would call that the inner circle. That exclusive social network where power and importance and superiority are bestowed upon the select few who are in. But C.S. Lewis said that deep in our psyche is this lifelong fear of being left outside the inner ring, of not belonging. He called that the lust for the esoteric, the desperate longing to be inside. And he said that while an inner ring is not necessarily a bad thing for us, whenever we become part of one, We open ourselves up to becoming scoundrels, as he called them. And what he meant by a scoundrel is simply somebody who doesn't live with authenticity. Someone who can't be himself because others expect him to conform to the group. Someone who can't speak up because she's expected to agree with the prevailing view. Someone who cannot say no Because it seems like everybody else is saying yes. And you know how this works. Someone tells a lie or stretches the truth and you know it's wrong, but can I say something? Someone cuts a corner, fudges some numbers, bends the rules, and they say, look, this is just what we do around here. And the very mention of the word we, it feels so good. Because we're in. The drive to belong can be a very powerful source for goodness in the world. It's partly what we're doing today. Down the halls of this building every day, AA groups are meeting, scouting groups are meeting, youth groups are meeting, Bible studies, recovery groups, support groups. They're all reminding people of their inherent worthiness. These are good things. But the drive to belong can also rob us of our authenticity if those groups become the sole source of our sense of worthiness. Think of this. The Proud Boys. The Oath Keepers. Hate groups and conspiracy groups. Terrorists and white supremacy groups. What draws people into these toxic inner circles almost always It's a shattered and disfigured sense of self. It's an inherent sense of unworthiness, a desperate self-loathing that is looking and hustling for validation from others. Maybe this is why Jesus teaches us that love of neighbor begins with love of self. Maybe this is why the world is so full of hostility and hatred today. Because loving ourselves is nearly impossible if our self-worth is dependent on the approval of other people or if it's dependent on our possessions or the, uh, the image that we project into the world or our accomplishments or the number of keys in our key ring or our, our job titles. To love our neighbors, we have to begin by loving ourselves. And to love ourselves means we have to understand that God fashioned us in love and then stood back and said, this is good. And then says to us in Christ, you're accepted. Wherever you see healthy families, healthy churches, healthy neighborhoods, healthy communities, you will always find there imperfect people, but people who truly love themselves. People who are fiercely committed to their own belief in their own God-given worthiness. And to make this point, Luke tells us a story about a dinner party. You heard Reverend Jerry, just read that. It's one of those parties, by the way, that you really don't want to go to. You dread going to these kind of parties because the guest list is full of people who you know really don't love themselves. They are the ladder climbers the self-promoters, the schmoozers, the suck-ups, the shysters, the strivers, all the people that stirs, the strivers, all the people that C.S. Lewis called scoundrels. And Jesus, for some reason, is also invited to the party, maybe because the host is like, you got to clean these people up, fix them. (laughs) All the guests are arriving, and... Jesus stands back and he watches all of them sort of jockeying for a place at the table. And Jesus is amused by the games that we play. In this first century shame and honor culture, dining hierarchy was serious business. The dinner table became the primary cultural symbol of social order. It said to everybody who is important and who isn't so that people sitting closest to the host at the front end of the table were the most worthy and influential. Those at the very end of the table, not so much. And at this party, Jesus has seen all these wealthy celebrities and preachers. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but um, <laughs> probably some televangelists. Maybe Elon Musk is there. Um, and they're all, they're all jockeying for a place at the head of the table when Jesus interrupts them. And he says, why don't you take your seats at the end of the table and then wait for the host to invite you to come forward. Give it a try. You might learn a lot about yourself. And then he tells the host, you know, the next time you throw a party, don't invite these people. Instead, invite the poor who won't care or know how much money you spent on the wine or the hors d'oeuvres invite those who are disabled who won't be jockeying over a place at the table they're just going to be happy to sit down invite the blind who won't be every few minutes uh, looking at the door to see what celebrity next will come into the room invite the lonely who on most nights are sitting at home eating a tv dinner watching reruns of the Golden Girls. Invite the hungry, who on most nights aren't even eating at all. Invite all these people. It's going to be a great party. And after that teaching at the table, I imagine everybody at the party just fell silent because they didn't understand the logic of the teaching. I mean, who in their right minds would give a gift like a a dinner invitation to somebody who wouldn't be able to return the favor who doesn't keep track of who owes who and who never seems to get around to repaying in your mind's eye can you see all the sophisticated guests sitting at the table of honor in their fancy suits and gowns they're handing out business cards and comparing stock portfolios and hustling for love and validation and they all just look so empty and then you look at the other end of the table down there you're going to find Jesus hanging out with prostitutes some tax collectors some lepers and beggars some people that just got out on parole maybe even a few Michigan militia people because that's how Jesus did things and they're all having the time of their lives some of them are laughing so hard, they're crying. Some of them are telling jokes and you know, laughing at each other because they use the, the salad fork instead of the, the main course fork. And I mean, who knew, right? Why is the end of the table so beautiful? It's because in the presence of Jesus, they know who they are. They don't have to pretend to be anybody else. They know they're accepted. At which end of the table do you most want to sit? And if you were to host, who would you want closest to you? I know it's just one story about a dinner party, and we don't really know all the facts. We have no idea what really went on down there at the end of the table. Maybe it wasn't all fun and games after all. Because most of our dinner parties these days also aren't fun and games a lot of times. I bet that party was probably like most of the parties that we experience. The kind where everything is going super well until that one neighbor, unsolicited, goes on a rant about immigration or abortion or gun rights and the collective blood pressure in the room just spikes to the roof and everybody clears their throats and they hold their breath even the even the jello stops jiggling you know have you been at that table before i have it's horrible no one wants to be at that table and isn't that the state of the world right now no one wants to be at the table And so he just stopped going to dinner parties. Jesus lived at that table every day. He sat at tables with zealots and Samaritans, publicans and Essenes, Herodians, Pharisees, Romans, Gentiles, Jews, soldiers, expats. Jesus sat at the table and set the table for all of them because he loved every one of them. And we hate this about Jesus. And we love this about Jesus. And we don't want or even know how to do this like Jesus. But if we don't try, the only real alternative is for all of us to go hungry. Not hungry for food. Hungry for love. For connection. We will be starving ourselves for community. Because we wrongly assume that everyone at the table just wants to be right. When the truth is, everyone at the table just wants to be loved. Only sometimes they just don't know how to ask for it. I don't know how to do this Jesus-y party planning thing very well. I'm not good at it. But I'm trying, and whenever I'm at a dinner party today, I try to remember how Jesus did it. He always made it about the bread and the cup. He remembered what the guests really needed, what they really longed for, what they hungered for, love and belonging, acceptance. These simple sacraments of bread and wine, the ordinary means by which we come to know and love each other. Laughter, storytelling, humility, hospitality. I am absolutely certain that there were times when Jesus sat at the table and things really got heated among the guests. I'm positive, and Jesus, I'm sure, called time out. I bet there were times, I wish it was recorded in the Gospels. I bet there were times when Jesus said, Can we give it a break? All this talk about Pilate and Herod and Caesar and Rome and the occupation and taxes, can it just wait tonight? Tonight, can we just make it about us? About you? Can we just make it about the bread? And the cup. Whenever you plan a party, always make it about the bread and cup of Jesus, because that's an act of communion that says whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you believe, whatever news channel you watch, you're worthy, you're welcome. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, he wrote about his friends Kathy and David, who have a son named Santi, and Santi goes to public schools in Washington D.C. And Santi had a friend who sometimes would go to school hungry, and so Santi invited his friend to occasionally eat and sleep at his house. And that friend had a friend, and that friend had a friend, and. Brooks says that now when you go to Kathy and David's house on a Thursday night, there might be 15 or 20 teenagers crammed around the dinner table, all of whom have endured homelessness or hunger, abuse or trauma or assault. Almost all of them have endured death and witnessed it either to a sibling, a friend or a parent. And they all call Kathy and David mommy and dad. And every Thursday night... They turn to one another's love like flowers turn to the sun. And all who gather around the table are invited to bring a gift. One of the boys reads a poem that he wrote. Another sings a song with a guitar. Another gives a short talk on engine repair. But the greatest gift that they give each other is their complete intolerance of social distance. Hugging is mandatory. And Brooks sums it up beautifully when he says, souls are not saved in bundles. Love is a necessary force. Our takeaways for today, everyone at the table just wants to be loved. Only sometimes they do not know what to ask for. And almost always make it about the bread and cup of Jesus. And remember, whoever you are, wherever you've come from, you are worthy and you are welcome.